Isaiah chapter 61, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the vengeance of our God. It seems that everybody today has a screen name. Your proper name is a gift from your parents, or perhaps a curse, depending on whether you like your name. Nicknames are coined by the people in your life, people around you. But a screen name is your own personal creation. It's an opportunity for self-expression. An online name is a reflection of who you perceive yourself to be or how you want to be recognized by your peers. My youngest son was an outstanding baseball player. He was a middle infield who could vacuum up ground balls. And so he used to have the screen name Mac the Vac. It's a great screen name. My second son was a soccer player. He was also a punter and a place kicker for his high school football team, the South Gwinnett Comets, no less. His screen name was Comet Kicker. Maybe not as good as Mac the Vac, but still a good screen name. Screen names are self-revelations, you see. And I loved my daughter's screen name. She called herself God's Girl. One look at that screen name and you know something about her life and her priorities. Well, here's an interesting question for you this morning. If Jesus had lived in the Internet age, and if he had chosen for himself a screen name, what do you think it would have been? I think I know. How about Isaiah 61? For that is the ID that Jesus logs on with here in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 records an episode in Jesus' life where he drew from Isaiah 61. In fact, he saw himself in a scroll that had been written 700 years earlier. When Jesus read this passage, it was like looking in a mirror. He saw himself in his mission in the portrait painted by the prophet. This morning, we want to study this pivotal occasion here in Luke chapter 4. You know, you've heard the expression, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Well, here Jesus makes a first impression. He sets a precedence that carries over for the rest of his ministry. He lays out and discloses his intentions. We begin here in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now understand the setting. Jesus has been rolling through the cities of Galilee. He's been healing the sick casting out demons, speaking of the kingdom of God. And Jesus had created quite a stir. Everyone was asking questions. Who is this man? What does he, where does he come from? What is he up to? What are this man's intentions? In fact, the speculation swirling around Jesus had reached a fevered pitch. Was he a rabbi with some new interpretation of Scripture? Was he a political militant out to break the Roman shackles? Was he a prophet sent from God with some new revelation? Or maybe just a magician, someone skilled in the sleight of hand and the arts of deception? Or was he? 
Could he really be? Was this man the long-awaited promised deliverer, the Messiah? And that was the kind of speculation surrounding Jesus when he returned to his hometown of Nazareth and entered into the local synagogue on that Sabbath day. Now understand, Nazareth was the hub of several different trade routes. It was like a truck stop packed with caravans. And since Jewish law limited travel on the Sabbath day, most Saturdays saw the town crawling with visitors. So when word got out that Jesus was in town on that particular Sabbath, and since everyone knew that he was in the habit of visiting the synagogue on the Sabbath day, all the curious came out that particular Sabbath hoping to unravel the mystery surrounding Jesus. Well, verse 16 takes us into the synagogue. It tells us that Jesus entered and he stood up to read. You see, it was customary for a visiting dignitary to read a passage from the Old Testament. It was part of the synagogue service. Verse 17 tells us, And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Jesus takes the scroll. He unrolls this scroll to the verses that we just read. What we now call Isaiah 61. A prophecy that had explained in specific detail the Messiah and his mission. And Jesus read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's when verse 20 tells us, Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And this was a signal that Jesus was ready to teach. You see, today pastors, they usually stand up to teach. But in the first century synagogue, the rabbis would sit down to teach. This was a signal that Jesus is about to explain what he's just read. That's why we're told, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. I bet they were. Everyone had inched up on the edge of their seat. Every eye was fixed on Jesus. They all knew Isaiah 61. They knew it was a picture of the Messiah's ministry. And they were wondering if Jesus would claim this as his mission or would he apply this to another. And they didn't have to wait long for an answer. For he speaks clearly to them in verse 21. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, look no further. I am the one and today is the day. I am God's deliverer. What I've just read is my mission. Jesus logs on with the screen name, Isaiah 61. Here's what Jesus intends to do. And it's vital that you and I understand the intentions of Jesus, for he calls on us to give him our all. To love Him with our heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus expects us to pledge to Him our very lives. Understand, our Lord is bold. He is no puppet king. He is no figurehead. He commands our lives. He, he, wants us to, he wants us to surrender to Him. He wants to sit on the throne of our hearts. 
Jesus expects to call the shots. But here's the million-dollar question. How can I give my life to Jesus if I'm unsure of his motives? You've probably been in an old country store and you've seen the sign above the cash register that reads, In God we trust, all others pay cash. Seen that sign? Or perhaps you've heard the old adage, Trust everybody but always cut the cards. I mean, who can we really trust? It seems the older we get, the harder it is for us to trust people. Once we've been let down a time or two, it's difficult to rely on others. Life's disappointments and betrayals cause us to get hard-hearted and cynical. We're unwilling to trust in general. It's even difficult to trust Jesus if we're not confident of His intentions. Imagine, you've just purchased a new Ferrari Enzo, 660 horsepower, a V12, 6-speed, the list price $643,330. It gets eight miles to a gallon, but who cares? You're loaded. But what if I ask if I could borrow your car for a few hours? I don't care how nice a guy you happen to be or how much you might trust me. Before you hand over the keys, you're going to inquire about my intentions. And what if I told you I wanted to do a little off-roading this afternoon? Maybe go mudding. You'd tell me I was nuts. But what if I told you I needed the new Ferrari to drive my ailing neighbor to the doctor? Well, maybe you'd still call me nuts. <laughs> maybe you'd pray about it. I don't know. But here's my point. My intentions will dictate the level of trust that you place in me. And the same is true with Jesus. I need to be certain of the master's motive if I'm really going to turn over the keys of my life over to him and trust him with my whole heart. This is what's going on in the synagogue that Sabbath day in Nazareth. Here Jesus spells out his intentions, what he wants to do in your life and in my life. He spells it out once and for all. He wants there to be no confusion, no misunderstandings. Jesus wants you and I to know exactly what we can expect from Him if we give our lives over to Him. That's why here in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, and He describes what He intends to do in you once you belong to Him. First, our Lord Jesus was anointed. He was empowered by the Spirit of God to preach the gospel to the poor. The poor are often the neglected people. Their society's casts off and rejects. The world we live in tends to define a person's value by the balance in their bank account. When people talk about their net worth, they're not talking about the value that God places on their lives. They're talking about their financial assets. Jesus identified not with the rich and the wealthy, but he identified with the poor. Remember, he was born to peasants. He lived among paupers. He died without a penny to his name. Jesus knew what it meant to be poor. And his goal was to bring the gospel or good news to the poor. You know, a lot of people think that Jesus' number one goal is to give money to the poor. But that's not what it says. In fact, there are some Christian churches that teach that God wants to make all Christians rich and wealthy. But why would God give financial wealth 
when they can add to our misery as easily as they can add to our relief. There was a young man that I, I coached in Little League basketball several years ago who I heard recently won the lottery. He won like $9 million. Bought him a new Hummer. I haven't talked to him since his windfall. I keep hoping to receive a check in the mail thanking me for teaching him how to dribble. But I often think of this young man, and I wonder if he's any happier now than he was before he won the lottery. You know, a few years ago, a study was done on people who had won their state's lottery. And for most people, their winnings made their lives worse rather than better. Rosa Grayson won the lottery in Washington State, but today she lives in hiding. She's developed a case of nerves. She's a target for every con artist in the world. A New York man won a million dollars and split it with his two sons. A year later, the boys were no longer speaking to their dad. His wife was accusing him of hiding the money. All three were in state court for non-payment of income tax. The wife made the comment of her husband's earnings, it's the devil's money. Here's what Jesus brings to the poor. Not money, but good news. Jesus teaches us that with or without money, he can give our lives worth and purpose. Whether you're wearing designer clothes or own a house with a swimming pool or drive a luxury car or travel to exotic destinations, don't let that define who you are. Money doesn't equal happiness. Jesus does. There are lots of ways to be poor. You see, to be poor is to be without. Oh, money, sure. But I've met lots of poor, rich people, haven't you? Folks with money, but without love and without friends and without joy and without peace, peace of mind, and without a good reason to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, Jesus loves those who are without. He tells us that real joy isn't found in material treasures, but in spiritual blessings. It was movie star Brad Pitt who recently commented, I'm the guy who's got everything, but I'm telling you, once you get everything, then you're left, you're just left with yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better and you don't wake up any better because of it. Now, no one's going to want to hear that. I understand it. I'm sorry I'm the guy who's got to say it, but I'm telling you, bad, Brad Pitt is giving you the bad news that all the world's riches won't produce happiness. But Jesus brings you the good news. For whether you're rich or poor, live with Jesus and life will be richer, it will be fuller, it will be more rewarding. Jesus brings good news to the poor. Second, Jesus heals the brokenhearted. You know, I read recently that the number one ailment in America is back pain. But trust me, the broken hearts, they far outnumber the sore backs. The brokenhearted have tasted of life's injustices. They've looked for love and walked away disappointed. The brokenhearted are the innocent victims, the used and the abused and the refused. And you know, Jesus loves the brokenhearted, for he is one of them. He was rejected by those he came to save. He was betrayed by those who knew him best. You know, often people ask God, 
they ask, why does God allow for innocent people to suffer? And I admit, there are no easy answers to that question, but one truth stands out. God doesn't dish out to us what he hasn't experienced himself. Jesus literally died of a broken heart. In Isaiah 61, the Hebrew word translated broken, it means to burst. Most crucifixion victims, they died of asphyxiation. But those who've studied the crucifixion of Jesus believe that his overworked heart literally exploded in his chest. Jesus died of a ruptured heart, a broken heart, and in so doing, he found a way to bring us healing. Perhaps you've been betrayed. Maybe you've been taken advantage of by someone who was supposed to be loyal. Your heart has been broken. Even today, it aches and it bleeds and it cries. Realize, friend, Jesus wants to heal your broken heart. But here's how the healing of Jesus works. Jesus is a balm. He is a poultice. You know, today's doctors, they like to prescribe surgeries. They like to perform surgeries. They want to cut you open and yank out the problem. But in Jesus' day, surgeries were rare. The doctor understood that the body healed itself, and the job of the doctor was to accentuate the healing process. And thus, doctors would take a cloth. They would lubricate it with aloes and with neutralizing herbs, and they would lay it over the wound. The compress soaked into the skin, and it sucked out the deadly poisons. Rather than a procedure per se, healing was a process that over time worked by absorption. And this is the healing that Jesus performs. You know, often we want Jesus just to cut us open and immediately just fix the problem, remove the struggle altogether. That's not always how he works. The love of Jesus is a balm that over time sucks out the poison and the pain. As Jeremiah said to Israel, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of my people? Gilead was home to a tree which produced a gummy substance. Rags were coated with the resin and they were placed on various wounds. They would suck out the toxins and the infections. And the balm of Gilead became a title, a name for the Messiah. For Jesus is a poultice that goes over the broken heart. As we get to know Jesus, virtue is absorbed. As we experience his love, as we feel his forgiveness, as we begin to see ourselves in Christ, healing occurs. This is what the New Testament refers to as abiding in Christ. It's learning to live under the poultice of God's grace. Gradually, His grace pulls to the surface all of our hurts and they begin to dissipate. Once festering sores begin to dry up, Jesus is our healing. I read an American Medical Association report that said the average wait for an appointment with a doctor is 20 minutes. Wish I knew that, doctor. For a family physician, it's half an hour. But Jesus is ready to see you right now. It's his intention to heal your broken heart. It's been said God can do wonders with a broken heart if you give him all the pieces. Begin to learn of Jesus. Show him where it hurts. Let the poultice begin its healing. And then third, I want you to notice that Jesus proclaims liberty 
to the captives. You know, according to the Justice Department, one out of every 200 people will be jailed at some point in their life. That's an alarming statistic. That means a couple of you out here this morning are going to spend some time in the lockup here before long. But here's an even worse statistic. One out of every one person experiences the prison house called sin. John chapter 8 verse 34 tells us, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And the worst aspect of sin is its habitual nature. You know, sometimes you'll hear a person say, well, this one time won't hurt. And it might not if you could stop with that one time. But sin and Lay's potato chips have a lot in common. You can't eat just one. Sin establishes a pattern. Continual sin carves a rut in our minds from which it's difficult to escape. It's been said, sin takes us farther than we wanted to go, costs more than we wanted to pay, and keeps us longer than we wanted to stay. But here's the good news. Jesus specializes in jailbreaks. He has power to bust sin's addictive element. Jesus is strong enough to snap the chains of sin. He can lift us out of sin's rut and set us free. Jesus is able to deliver the captives who were controlled by sin. Always remember, Jesus didn't say he would take away our temptation. Again, I know people who are waiting on Jesus to do what he never promised to do. Nowhere does it say that Jesus is willing to remove the tempting situation. But if we look to him, if we trust in him, he promises to deliver us out of that temptation situation. We sin not because we give out of strength to resist temptation. God is sufficient to supply us his power. We sin because we give up or we give in. We lose confidence and hope in God. We give in to our urges rather than battle them with God's power. Hey, if you've failed God in the past, if you're drowning in a sea of guilt and buried under a blanket of shame, if you're still battling that monster, remember Jesus is able to deliver the captives. That is his intention for you. I once saw a documentary about the famed football coach from Grambling University, Eddie Robinson. Every morning before daybreak, Coach Robinson, he would walk through the athletic dormitory and he would wake up his players with a cowbell. I bet they really looked forward to that. He'd walk down the halls talking about the opportunities awaiting these young men. He would say, you go, you get to go to class today. And there's practice today. And today is the day you begin to prepare for the rest of your life. And he would just walk down the hall shouting out the opportunities that were before them. You see, by filling their minds with today's possibilities, not yesterday's failures, he kept his players, he helped his players to forge a new start. He gave them a chance to start over, to become the men that they were meant to be. And this is what Jesus does. If you listen to him this morning, he is proclaiming deliverance to the captives. He opened the prison doors on the cross of Calvary. His power is now available, and now he proclaims it to those who are struggling with sin. If you listen, he'll speak to you of today's successes and the future's possibilities. He has forgiven yesterday's failures. 
And then Jesus brings recovery of sight to the blind. Once a busy psychiatrist was warned by his receptionist, hey, we got a weird guy out in the lobby. He believes he's invisible. Well, without thinking, the doctor told her, said, well, please tell him I can't see him right now. <laughs> did you know, did you miss those jokes while we were gone? While I was gone? Did, did you know that two out of every three Americans will wear eyeglasses at some point in their lives? You know, there are a lot of people out there that can't see. And this is not only true physically, it's also true spiritually, more so spiritually. There are many people who live in a fog to the things of God. Once a husband, he was driving home from work and his wife was watching the evening news. She called him on his cell phone. She said, honey, I just saw on the news that there's a guy driving the wrong way on 285. I know that's your route home, honey, and I just wanted to warn you. The husband replied, thanks, but it's not just one guy. There's hundreds of them. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't realize he was the wrong way driver. And the same can be true for us. Man, until we see life from God's perspective, we too are in danger of self-deception. We can do some wrong way living. Proverbs 14 verse 12 tells us, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We desperately need for God to open our eyes to the truth. Once there was a scientist who discovered a beautiful but tiny flower that grew in the highlands of Scotland. He was actually out in the fields on his knees, bending over in the grass, uprooting a few of these microscopic flowers. An old shepherd approached the scientist and asked him what he was doing. Well, the scientist took him to the back of his truck and he put one of these little flowers under a microscope. He then invited the old man to take a look. When the shepherd saw the beautiful flower, he groaned, What a gorgeous flower. And imagine, I've been trampling them my whole life. And you see, this is the problem with a lot of us. God is at work all around us. He loves us in a million ways. God opens doors and works miracles and reveals himself. The problem is that we often don't see it. We're trudging through life, trampling on the things that he has planted along our path, the wonderful things. And you know what's interesting? Just going to church or just praying or just reading your Bible can't cure a spiritual blindness. Hey, you don't cure a blind man by just turning up the light. It takes a more radical procedure. You have to go to the doctor. You have to get treated. He has to work on you. And Jesus is the great physician. He's the only physician who can open blind eyes. Imagine blind Bartimaeus. He had never seen a sunrise. He had never seen a baby smile. He had never seen a red rose. Yet when Jesus touched his eyes, all those sights and more came into focus. Hey, before we know Christ, we see this world in shades of gray. Things are blurred at best. But when he touches our eyes, he makes us aware of God's presence. 
we see His grace and His glory and His greatness. His ways are now understandable. And a new world opens up to us. Oh, Jesus loves to bring recovery of sight to the blind. And then fifth, Jesus sets at liberty those who are oppressed. Literally, oppressed. It means bruised. This phrase could be translated, Jesus brings freedom to those who have been bruised emotionally. You know what a bruise is. A bruise is a sign of bleeding under the skin. And this is also the cause of an emotional or spiritual bruising. The person Jesus is thinking of here is hemorrhaging spiritually. And the oppressed, they're not hard to pick out of the crowd. The emotionally bruised is a young lady bent on destructive behavior. Her rebellion masks her pain. Or it's the angry man, the bully, who's tough on the outside because he's trying to hide the hurts he feels on the inside. Or it's the calloused adult who protects themselves from disappointments by pretending they don't care. The bruised are like the brokenhearted. They've been let down by life. But you see, the bruised have given up. They no longer believe in the possibility of healing. They've sealed off their hearts. They just intend to protect themselves. They've withdrawn and they've turned bitter. They're bleeding spiritually, dying on the inside, and they refuse to let anybody know or help. And understand the cure for this bruising. It's not healing. It's liberty. Notice this. You see, a broken heart needs to be healed. But a bruised heart, a bitter heart, a heart that's now tough and prideful and never wrong, this kind of heart needs to be repented of and forsaken. It might have been someone else's fault that your heart was broken. But if you allow yourself to get bitter from it, It's now your responsibility. You need to admit your sin, your part of the problem. You've got to open up your heart now and ask Jesus for help. Imagine breaking your arm and yet never going to the doctor to have it reset or to realign. Your arm could actually heal crooked. You could end up with a dysfunctional arm as a result. Well, this is the problem with many a person's psyche. The brokenhearted can heal crooked. See, if you don't take your broken heart to Jesus, now in in addition to the break, you can develop other complications as well. This is why people develop phobias and suffer from depression and guilt complexes and inhibitions and bitterness and critical spirits and the inability to trust that they've healed crooked. Only Jesus can align a broken spirit. He alone can free us from a lingering inner bleeding. He has a cure. Jesus has a serum for this bitterness. It's called love. It's called love. Jesus loves you in a way that makes you want to love again. He does. He forgives you in a way that allows you to forgive others. He revives hope in you so much so that it will cause you to have hope for others. His love casts out fear. Our Lord Jesus can reset the bitter and relieve the bruised, and He can free them both from their oppression.
Well, here's the Messiah's motive. Jesus intends to bring good news to those who are without. He intends to heal broken hearts, to break the captive's chains, to recover for us our spiritual sight, to love the oppressed until they're set free. And lastly, Jesus comes to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Or as one commentator interprets it, to announce this is God's year to act. He's saying this is all all that I've just spoken to you. It's more than wishful thinking. God is going to do this today. What Jesus has described, he is ready to make a reality. Heard of a restaurant in Florida that continues to have a sign in front, and it reads, Free lunch tomorrow. That sign gets a lot of attention. It's been up for over a decade, and not a single free lunch has ever been served. Free anything tomorrow is a hollow promise. That's why Jesus is saying he's ready to act right now. Today is the day of the Lord. Jesus isn't promising to change our lives tomorrow. He intends to work in our lives today, even this morning. Bear Bryant used to tell the funny story about his days when he coached the Kentucky Wildcats. And in a game against Tennessee, a runner fumbled the ball out of bounds. Well, in the chaotic scramble that ensued, someone on the sideline kicked over a box, spilling eight more footballs out onto the field. Well, players from both teams fought to recover the nine different footballs. And nobody knew which of the footballs was the original, neither the players or the referees. Bryant recalls that since Tennessee scooped up five footballs and Kentucky recovered only four footballs, the official awarded the possession to Tennessee. But the moral of the story is clear. When opportunity bounces your direction, you ought to pounce on it. And this should have been the attitude of the Jews who were there in that synagogue that day, who heard this sermon from Jesus. What an opportunity. The Messiah of whom they had waited for decades, for centuries, was suddenly there, and he was ready to do his work. Sadly, though, they refused to get on the ball. At first, they were really close to believing Jesus' intentions. Notice verse 22. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. I mean, they were on the very verge of faith. But that's when one loud mouth joker in the back piped up and he shouted, Is this not Joseph's son? In other words, we know this guy. We went to kindergarten with him. We were on the same little league team. That's just Joseph's kid. We used to watch him playing in the back of the carpenter shop. He's no different than the rest of us. And immediately their hope was doused by a bucket of cold cynicism. Jesus responds to the scoffer in verse 23. He says, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. 
In other words, the locals couldn't believe that one of their own could actually be the Messiah. As the old saying, as the old, uh, saying puts it, familiarity breeds contempt. I think that's putting it too mildly, though. Really, they were too stubborn to admit that God had been in their midst and that they'd actually missed Him. The folks in the synagogue that day, they stumbled over simple pride. But that wasn't the first time that pride, the pride of God's people, had robbed them of a blessing. For Jesus goes on and He tells here two stories of how Israel had missed out on a visitation from God. And in both cases, the problem was pride. Jesus says in verse 25, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. In other words, there were plenty of hungry widows in Israel. But it took a woman from outside God's family to humble herself, to trust God enough to bring her need to Him. And then Jesus tells a second story with the same moral. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Again, the territory of Israel, it was full of lepers. But it took a Syrian, a foreigner no less, to admit his need and come to God and ask for healing. In both cases, humility was the star and pride was the villain. See, pride is the hurdle that lies between our need and the intentions of Jesus. Don't you pretend in your pride that you don't need him. Jesus intends, He wants to bring good news to those who are without if we stop acting like we got it all together. He wants to heal the brokenhearted, but the broken have to bring all of the pieces of their heart to Jesus. Jesus promises to deliver us from the prison house of sin, but we've got to own the mess that we have made and confess it. He wants to open blind eyes, but we've got to really want to see. Jesus heals bruises, but we got to give up our bitterness. And this isn't just pie-in-the-sky, fanciful, wishful thinking. He'll do this today. If you and I swallow our pride and come to Jesus on His own terms. You know, a lifeguard is trained to approach a drowning person cautiously. Often he waits until the person burns up all of his energy. They're just about to go under for the very last time before he swims out to attempt a rescue. For if he jumps in too early, that drowning person might pull him under too. It's only after a person has given up trying to save themselves that they can truly be saved. And the same is true with us. Jesus has wonderful intentions for our lives, but he waits until we're exhausted, until we're willing to acknowledge our need and lean on Him for help. Here is some really good news. What Isaiah predicted of the Messiah, his heart and his mission, was as true that day in Nazareth as it was the day Isaiah 61 was first written. 
700 years had done nothing to dim or to diminish the determination of Jesus to fulfill his intentions toward his people. And likewise, nothing has changed from that day in Nazareth until today. For the intentions of Jesus are the same now as they were 2,000 years ago. The Bible declares Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The intentions of Jesus have never changed. He wants to meet the needs of those who are living without. He wants to heal the hurts that this world has caused. He wants to free those who are enslaved to sin. He wants to provide spiritual sight to us all. He wants to love us so deeply that we'll want to love again. And he wants to do it today. If you and I will step over our sinful, stubborn pride and come to Jesus.